right, all right. Well, hey, it is good to be with you today. Hey, Rob and Linda, I like your sweater, sweatshirt thing. That's really beautiful. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team, and it's uh, wonderful to be with you today and all the holiday festivities. Beautiful, beautiful ugly sweaters uh, all around. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout, and you'll see that we're continuing a series. We're going to be marching this direction all the way to Christmas Eve services. Excited about that. And the, the series is called What I Really Want for Christmas. And last week, I began, uh, I talked about a movie that we watch in our family uh, almost every year. It's called A Christmas Story, and it seemed like very many of you resonated with that. Many were familiar with the story. Just show of hands, how many of you know A Christmas Story, and you've seen that? Ralphie with his desire for a BB gun. Well, good. So let me mine it just one more time, because in that movie, there is actually a parable that is so relevant, it's so applicable for what it is that we're going to be going after today. Today. And, and here it is. In, in the larger narrative of his desire for a BB gun, this nine-year-old boy, Ralphie, had saved up cereal box tops and sent them away so that he could receive in the mail a little orphan Annie decoder ring, right? It was a pin that he could use to decode these secret messages that were conveyed over the radio during the little orphan Annie hour. And he was so excited about receiving this decoder ring, he couldn't wait every day after school. He went to the mailbox, looked to see if the decoder ring was there. Finally, one day it is there. And so he's so excited. He listens to the secret message conveyed over the radio, writes it down, and then feverishly he decodes that message. If you remember this, he is certain that he is going to be revolutionized by this gift, that he is going to be integral in the salvation of many many lives, you know, and, and he decodes the message, and it was, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. That's right. It, it was a commercial, and he was so disappointed, and he, he was so angered by this uh, discovery that what he thought was going to be foundationally transformative in his own life was actually a complete and utter disappointment. And, and it, it kind of brings us to what it is that we're going to be talking about today. If you were with us last week, you know that what we did is we looked at the, the statement, what I really want for Christmas, and we identified the what. And it's not a what we really want for Christmas, it's a who we talked about, and, and not just any who, but it's the who of flourishing relationships in our lives, and specifically the who of Jesus Christ, the gift that we are given, uh, specifically that we celebrate at Christmas. So that's what we talked about last week. Today, we're talking about the really want. That's the part that we're gonna that we're gonna unpack today. The really want and what I really want for Christmas. And so, just to focus in, the really, the really, often what we want is not really what we want. Not really, not truly. We want what we think we want, but we don't really want it. And often it's when we finally end up getting it that we recognize it's not what we really wanted. Now, I know that sounds really confusing, but it's really true when you really think about what it really means. That's the word really. And then want, want has to do with desire. And, and there are good, healthy, God-given desires, 
And those are at war oftentimes with the cheap, shallow, substitute desires that we settle for. And what we really deeply desire, it often at odds with what we think we want, right? It's shortchanging our true desires by providing distractions or shortcuts, but rarely satisfaction. John Eldridge has written an incredible book called The Journey of Desire. It's one of my favorite books by him. And in it, he argues that God has given us our deep desires as actually a roadmap that points to him. But what it means is we have to actually analyze and, and mine our deep desires. We have to plumb them to their depths and make sure that we don't uh, that we don't settle for, for shallow substitutes, right? God has given us des- our desires for a reason, but so often what we do is settle for things that are less quality, things that maybe even numb our souls or numb our desire. And he, and he gives several examples. For example, I want another beer, but I truly desire peace within my own skin. Or I want the latest edition of the Gears of War video game, but what I truly desire is an adventure worth pursuing. Or I want the Seattle Seahawks to win the Super Bowl, but what I truly desire is the Seattle Seahawks to win the Super Bowl. (laughs) He didn't write that. I just really like the Seattle Seahawks. No, this is what God says in Jeremiah 29, 13. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And it's interesting, if you look at that verse, God says, you will. He doesn't say you might or you maybe will or it's a possibility, there's a good chance. God says, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is one of God's wills for you found in Scripture. And it's not that God is lost, that he needs finding. It's more of the posture of our hearts. Are we desiring to find the Lord? Do we we recognize that this is one of our deep desires? Because God says, when that is your deep desire and you recognize it, you will have your desire satisfied. But you see, we have to follow our desire down through the shallow substitutes that we typically settle for. C.S. Lewis writes it this way in The Weight of Glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Interesting. And it has to do with our hearts, and it has to do with the the way in which as we grow up and as we age, our our hearts get wounded from time to time, whether by mistakes we've made or just experiences that we have, ways in which people let us down, betrayals that we suffer, etc. And oftentimes, we carry those wounds with us, and those wounds become a source of confusion for us. Many times, we even end up believing lies about ourselves or about God because of these wounds that we've sustained. And, and it only takes a little wound to make a big impact on our lives. I, 
I remember once, uh, several years ago, my knees were killing me. Anytime I would run any distance, my knees were just such, such pain. And so I went to the doctor. I got it all checked out. And it turns out my problem wasn't with my knees at all. It was with my neck. I had a, a subluxation in my neck. One of my vertebrae was out of line. And so once it got into alignment, um, the, the, sort of the trickle down was because my, my neck was out of alignment, when I would run, my hips would try to compensate. Because my hips were compensating, then my knees were taking all of the brunt of that. And so the problem was up here. Once you fix the alignment, then suddenly everything else began to function much, much better. And I want you to know that, that our lives, they're not, uh, you know, categorically siloed. They're, they're not separated, the parts of our life, from one another. We are all interconnected. And so a little wound here will have incredible consequence in all of these different areas of our life, in our relationships that we forge, in the way that we have our, our views of our own self-identity, in the ways in we view God and, and His character, the Father heart of God. You see, a little wound can impact all of these things. And a wound will create a sense of need or a void in our lives. And advertisers hammer that again and again and again. And so you recognize most of the advertising, most of the messages that we hear in terms of commercials are, oh, you have this spiritual need, you have this relational need, you have this emotional need, here's a new Lexus to take care of that, here's a smartphone to take care of that, here's the latest shiny whatever to take care of that, and if we buy into it, we're just like nine-year-old Ralphie thinking that that decoder ring is going to transform our lives, and just like Ralphie was disappointed, we end in disappointment. Can I hear an amen? So, so that's kind of what's going on. And, and, and then as I was thinking about it this week, I recognized, you know, Mike, I am a part of the problem. Unwillingly, unwittingly, I have been a part of this problem, perpetuating the same cycle of discontent, the same cycle of looking to the next thing to try to meet my need. And so I wanted to share a very true, very real story from my life and, and parents, if you're a parent here, uh, just see if you can identify even a little bit with this. It's a story about a Christmas that we had in our home many, many years ago. It was when my son Caleb, he was just a little baby. I want to show you a picture of Caleb here. Please don't tell him I showed you this picture, okay? He is, he is very manly at 14 years old, and to think that you saw that picture, I, I'll take heat for it. So, uh, promise? Promise? Okay, good. So Caleb is having his, his Christmas experience as, as like maybe just over a one-year-old, and he couldn't talk. But you just need to know, Caleb was the first grand boy on both sides of our family. And so the grandparents had all kinds of desire to spoil him. And just so you know, and you feel that the, there's equality here, uh, my daughter, his older sister, was the first grandchild at all. So she was very well spoiled already. So, so there was a lot of desire to spoil him. And not only from his grandparents, but he's got all kinds of aunts and uncles, and they wanted to spoil him as well. And then, uh, of course, his parents may be a little overeager to spoil him uh, in terms of Christmas. And then, of course, Santa. Uh, you know, we have, for right or wrong, allowed Santa to invade our home with his reverse thieving uh, kind of methodology. And so, anyway, the, the pile of gifts that Caleb had, and he was just over one year old, was easily five times as large as he was. 
And we divvy out all of the gifts, and it's his turn to open a gift. And, and this is before he could talk at all. I remember holding a gift out to him. Buddy, this is for you. And he couldn't talk, but I, I just knew what he was, what he was thinking. His, his face was so expressive. He was like, this is for me? He was so excited. I'm like, yeah, buddy, it's a, it's a gift. He's like, I love it. Well, open it up. You mean there's more? You know, he had no idea. I'm like, yeah, there's more. Open it up. So he would begin to rip the paper, and he loved ripping the paper. He's like, this is the best thing ever. And then he's got this box. He's like, I love boxes, you know. And I'm like, well, take the toy out. He's like, there's a toy. He's just, everything was so great. You know, babies are kind of naturally stoned, and he was just so happy. I just so happy, just, oh, a toy. I've always wanted this toy for like nine months. I've wanted this toy. And, and he's just so happy. And, and so we would take the picture and, and we felt very validated as parents. And we could even hear, you know, the angels singing Noel softly in the heavenly realms. And, and it all was right with the world and in scene, right? But we, but we didn't end the scene because there was still a huge pile of gifts behind him. And so I did what any good father would do. I took his toy away, and I offered him another gift. And he started to cry because he just wanted the toy. He didn't even know that toy existed 10 minutes ago, but now it's all he wants. And I said, no, no, buddy, listen, let me train you up, right? Like, you have to understand, it's not about the toy you've just received. It's about this huge pile of toys you've yet to receive. And not only that, but we've got things to do. We've got places to go. We can't just sit around all day watching you play with this toy. So here's what you need to learn. You need to learn an immediate impatience for the toy that you've just had, almost the, an inconsequential disregard for the thing that you've just received, and make sure that you're always looking forward to the toy that you have not yet received. And he said, like any good son, I got it. <laughs> and so by the end of the day, that's exactly what was happening. He was quickly ripping paper off, opening a toy that he would immediately disregard and look for the next present. It was a great parenting moment for me. <laughs> but parents, have you ever been a part of anything like that? Yeah, it's crazy how just even without thinking about it, that's the cycle that we end up buying into. And so here's the challenge. Today I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else. But for our sakes, for the sake of our families, we need to get at a deeper, richer, more meaningful way to experience Christmas, to celebrate the birth of Christ. And so I want to challenge you with practices. These are practices that we can embrace as we not only look at this month, but as we look at how we steward our lives in general. So if you're filling in the blanks, the first one is this. I'd love to challenge each one of us for more life in, in, in this season. The first is the challenge towards simplicity. That we would embrace the practice of simplicity in our lives. That, that we would live and choose to live more simply than we do. Here's what it says in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is writing chapter 7. This is from the message paraphrase. I do want to point out, friends, that time is of the essence. There's no time to waste. So don't complicate your lives unnecessarily. Keep it simple. You might want to circle that. Keep it simple. In marriage, grief, joy, whatever. Even in ordinary things, your daily routines of shopping and so on, deal as sparingly as possible with the things the world thrusts on you. This world, as you see it, is on its way out. 
I want you to live as free of complications as possible. Please underline that last phrase. I want you to live as free of complications as possible. My grandpa Soft was a huge figure in my life. And ironically, he's a short man. But he was so foundational for me. And I've talked about my grandparents before from time to time. They're the ones that really displayed to me what unconditional, unfailing love looks like. But my grandpa Sof was this incredible guy. He was, a, he was a carpenter, a cabinet maker. He was a painter. And he was a very, very simple man. He, he would get up every day at 4.30, and he would have one cup of Maxwell House instant coffee. Every night at 10 o'clock, he would sit in the grandpa chair, and he would watch the 10 o'clock news And he would have a handful of planter's peanuts, maybe an occasional Coca-Cola. And those were the entirety of his worldly pleasures. He was an usher in his church for like 50 years, incredibly faithful to the Lord. He loved singing praises to Jesus. And And he was very simple. People loved my grandfather. They respected him. They knew that he would deal with them with integrity in his business. Just, an, just a really great guy. And I knew he delighted in me. I delighted in him. Every once in a while when we'd visit, he'd invite me up into the grandpa chair with him. He'd share his planter's peanuts with me. It, just, it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. He passed away about 15 years ago. And the interesting thing, my dad and I were just talking about my grandpa soft over the Thanksgiving holiday. My dad said to me, you know, I used to try to teach grandpa soft all the time. He said, I I can't tell you how many times I had a conversation with him where I tried to instruct him. Here's what you need to do with your painting business. You need to get more trucks. You need to hire more employees. You need to branch out. My dad would tell him, here's what you need to do. You need to invest in mutual funds. You need to invest in stocks. You need to build a a diverse portfolio. My dad would try to teach my grandpa all the time. And my grandpa would would listen to him respectfully. He'd listen to him. But he never really acted on any of the things that my dad tried to teach him. He, He just chose to live simply. My dad said just this last month, he said to me, I spent all that time trying to teach grandpa when I should have been listening and learning from him. He, he lived such a rich life. You know, he was never rich, but because his tastes were so simple, he was richly provided for. Well, I think we all could learn a little something from my grandpa Soft. And you need to understand this idea of simplicity. You know, our culture urges us to pursue complexity instead of simplicity. I want you to, I want you to listen to this and, and even maybe distill it over the course of the week. You might want to write this down. A desire fulfilled breeds more desire. We tend to think that a desire fulfilled produces satisfaction, but that is so rarely the reality. No, instead, we hunger for what we feed ourselves. And so the the challenge is instead of feeding ourselves complexity, we need to choose to feed ourselves simplicity. Right? We, we, we have to choose what it is that we're going to practice. One of my dear friends, 
uh, I have watched how they steward their lives, and I've, I've even learned from how they approach Christmas. At Christmas, they have, a, they have a few parameters around how they give gifts to their kids and their loved ones. They, they give gifts around what do they want, one gift, what, is, what, is, what, is, what do they want, what do they need, what can they wear, what can they read, and it's four gifts. It's pretty incredible, but it's a nice, simple way to view how they give gifts to their family members. And one of the ways that we're pursuing simplicity this December is in how we're celebrating Christmas. I don't know if you've put it together yet, but this year, December 25th, dawns on a Sunday. And so instead of putting together uh, another set of services after we've just been together on Christmas Eve services, putting together another set of services, more activities where you need to get everybody in the family dressed up, you got to get all the kids in their places, out the door, get to church on time. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. You never show up at church on time. Uh, that, that, that was just the concept of a church on time, right? Like that's, that's what's driving you, but not, you know, actually. So, but, but even the pressure around that and then trying to muster the hundreds and hundreds of volunteers that it takes, like the idea of just more, more, more and pace. And we just decided, you know what, forget that. Let's, let's pursue simplicity. And so we're providing something called Christmas at Home. And this is an opportunity to not only celebrate Jesus, the birth of Christ, it's an opportunity not only to worship together with your loved ones, with the people that are important to you and close to you, but you have an opportunity to do all of that in your pajamas, in your living room at home, right? Yeah, so this is going to be one of those deals where we're bringing church to you. The, the idea is that you would choose to worship, but you do that online. So it's going to be online, available just to hit play and watch it all, all the day long. And then if, if for whatever reason you're in a place where the internet's not working or reliable or, or whatever the story, um, we do have DVDs uh, available as well. So you're welcome to pick up a DVD if that'll better serve you. But again, the heart of it, the, the, the point we're trying to pursue is simplicity. We really want to value the important things and let the other things slip away. Okay, so the first is simplicity. By the way, a byproduct of, of practicing simplicity is a little thing called contentment. And that's the next practice I want to challenge you toward. That we would, we, that we would practice living content. We would practice being content. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You might want to circle that phrase. That's the challenge. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In other words, the Lord has said, hey, I'm enough and I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. So because I am enough, be content with what you have. That next verse from 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 and 8 says, True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. You want to be wealthy? Then live a godly, content life. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Let us be content. Now, I do want to just call this out. Sometimes we have to name it. We're aware of these things, but we're, because of we swim in this culture where we obviously uh, sometimes don't call them out. So we just have to name it. And here's what I need to name about contentment. You realize that there is nothing, and I mean nothing in our culture that preaches contentment. 
There's nothing that preaches content. You never hear that message. And you hear messages 3,000, 4,000 times a day, the commercials that bombard us. Never once is contentment preached. And I want you to know that even if your heart is a little bit like mine, even if you desire to be content, you're not allowed to be. Let me tell you what I mean. Think about technology for a moment. Let's say you're like me. You've got, a, you've got a phone that serves your purpose as well. So you just want to be content with your phone. Maybe you're like me. It took you a little, little bit of time to figure out how to use your phone. Like uh, you finally figured it all out. You finally have the two or three apps that serve you well. You know where everything is. You know how to get around the, th the apps that you use. And so you're content. Just let me have my phone. But no, you can't. Because if you stop doing the mandatory upgrades, your phone will not work any longer. Are you tracking with me? So you have to, every once in a while, you have to do an upgrade to make sure that you can keep using the phone that you're already content with. So you do the upgrade, and guess what? Colors are changed. Apps are changed. Everything's moved. Now i got to push the button. I used to swipe. I just figured out how to swipe. Now i got to push the button. Now you got to scroll up to go down. What's that all about? Scroll up to go down? That doesn't make any sense, you know? But now I, I have to do all of that. I have to learn all that. Why? Because I just want to text my kids, make sure I know where they are. Like, that's all I want. I want to make a phone call. Just let me keep my phone. But the technology folks, they say, no, you can't keep your phone. Your phone's no longer any good. You have to do the upgrade. I don't want the upgrade. I just want my phone. No, no, no. We can make it better. We can make that smaller. We can make that bigger. We can make your phone a virtual reality. We can, next year, we're going to make your phone able to pop your popcorn and drive your car and let you breathe underwater. I don't want that stuff. I want to make a phone call. I'm content with my phone, right? No, you're not allowed to be content. You see, you've always got to keep going on this cycle. And, and not only are you not allowed to be content, but heaven forbid, if you're at all like me and you're like, I just want my phone to stay the way that it, I finally learned how to use my phone. Don't make me relearn how to use my, you know what they say? Oh, you're, you, you got to get with it, old man. You're out of it. You're, you need to stay current. You're not even relevant anymore, you know? So I just want you to hear there's nothing in technology or there's nothing in our culture today that preaches contentment. It, it, so, so we've got to be the ones to choose to be content. And the traditions that we build into our families, uh, we have to view it in the same light, right? We build these traditions into our families because we want to celebrate time together with our family. So the emphasis should be time together with our family, but so often it, it, the, the emphasis becomes on the traditions that we've built and have to maintain. My buddy Lee was telling me a story this Christmas. Every year, for the past several years, they've done a family trek up to the mountains to chop a Christmas tree down, bring it home, and then decorate it. But he and his wife this year, they were processing what's going on in, in all of that. And first off, it's basically like a half-day commitment. And secondly, they've got four kids, and so it's bundling up all the kids. You're coming up to the mountains, you know, the snow and, and, and the driving in the snow, that kind of a thing. And then you give every kid a hacksaw, let them run around the, the forest. And, and they, of course, they can't decide on the tree. There's always arguments about what tree uh, they actually end up chopping down. Somebody gets frostbite. The cider gets spilled in the backseat of the car. Like, there's just all kinds of stuff. And so they just said, you know what? This year, let's focus on what we really want to focus on in the first place, which is this time together. So they grabbed the artificial tree they had in their rafters already, 
and they put it up, and they spent the entire day decorating, making, uh, playing games, you know, making hot cocoa, all that stuff. They just had an incredible family day. That's the point. And, and so often we have to remind ourselves, well, what is the point that we're trying to go after? And again, the answer is simplicity. It's contentment, right? A couple of stats just to help us practice our contentment. Uh, the first stat here is that the average 10-year-old owns 238 toys but plays with just 12. That, that sounds about right, doesn't it, that, that, that ratio? The next one, also about kids, 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the toys globally. Now, you do realize that is not a kid problem, don't you? <laughs> like the kids didn't buy those toys themselves, right? That, that's, that's on us. Okay, uh, next one. The average American woman owns 30 outfits, one for every day of the month. That figure in 1930 was nine. And this, this is not meant to just call out women because guys were exactly the same. Not exactly the same. There's a little difference. Uh, you know, when a woman looks in her closet and she says, I got nothing to wear, what she means is I've got nothing new to wear. Guys, you are different. When you look in your closet, you say, I got nothing to wear, it means I got nothing clean to wear. It's a little bit of a different perspective. But we're both on the hook, guys and girls. We're both on the hook there. And, and not, so, so think about it. I want you to think about the, the, the amount of toys we're buying our kids and the amount of clothes we're buying ourselves, the amount of stuff that we own, right, in general. Look at this. There are 300,000 items in the average American home. 300,000 items. And that leads us to this last statistic. The average size of the American home has tripled in size over the past 50 years. You've got to have a place to put the stuff, right? So what's driving this whole thing? I, I, I just want you to see the river that we are swimming in. And the river that we are swimming in, the current that we are in, is leading us to this whitewater rapids area that's just constantly more, 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 more. You're never going to hear a message on contentment in our culture. Nobody is going to come into your life and say, enough. So we've got to say it ourselves. Nobody else is going to come into your life and say, you know what, I'm good. So we've got to say it ourselves. We've got to choose to practice contentment. And it's going to take practice. It's going to take mindfulness. It's going to take a reorientation of us. Instead of us always wanting the things that we do not have, we need to begin to want the things that we actually have already, the blessings that God has actually provided for us already. But that takes practice. So we practice contentment. By, or we practice simplicity, rather, and a byproduct of simplicity is contentment. We practice contentment, and a byproduct of contentment is gratitude. And that's the next thing I want to challenge you to practice, that we would practice gratitude in this season. In Colossians 1.3, the Apostle Paul writes, Our prayers for you are always spilling over into thanksgivings. We can't quit thanking God, our Father, and Jesus, our Messiah, for you. 
And I chose that verse and I chose the message because it just so beautifully portrays this image of our prayers always spilling over into praise, our petitions always ending up as thanksgiving. And that's the kind of life I want to live and that's the kind of life I want to challenge you to live, but it will take practice. It'll take practice for us to live this kind of life of gratitude. Some of you have been praying for me last month, and I really am so thankful for that. And if you did not know, I had a, a minor surgery last month. It was some internal reconstruction of my sinuses and my septum, and, and the surgery itself went very well. But the week after the surgery of recovery, was as, it was so miserable it, it, was, it was absolutely pathetic. I, I, it was, there was so much pain and agony in that week. I would not wish that on any human being, and especially not on me. Okay. <clears throat> and, and, and it just was, it was I, I don't want to go into detail, but there was like drainage. No, I said no detail. There, there, uh, the, the, all of the pain was right here inside my head. There's no getting away from it. And the painkiller that they, they gave me, the Vicodin, it totally upset my stomach. And the antibiotic that they gave me uh, to make sure that I didn't get an infection post-surgery totally turned my gut. And, and so literally for the entire first week after, it was like, you just imagine every 15 minutes dry heaving all the time. Horrible, right? And that's, that's without detail. Like, I'm not giving you details. And so I just, I was in so much pain and agony, and it was the week before Thanksgiving, but then I, I kind of finally started to come out of it in the couple of days before we celebrated thanks, Thanksgiving. And, and so as we got ready for it, my wife came to me. She, you know, she was such a great caregiver over that week, and Jody came to me. She said, hey, we've got guests over for Thanksgiving. Why don't you, why don't you, write a few words and why don't you, why don't you pray over our meal? And we, we pray over meals that we sit down to all the time, but we had guests over, so I thought, oh, I'll take it up a notch, you know. So I wrote down a few words and I wrote out my prayer, and then as we stood around the Thanksgiving table, this, this huge, incredible banquet, um, I shared a few words with our guests and then I prayed. And I, I want to read you the prayer that I wrote. It's pretty simple. I, I wrote... Jesus, thank you for this life that you've given us. Thank you for a wood pile and a shed to dry wood in and a fireplace to have a fire in. Thank you for a turkey to cook and a stove to cook it in. Thank you for a table to set and to gather loved ones around. Thank you for your love poured out on the world. Thank you for my joy-filled, wonderful kiddos. Thank you for my beautiful, amazing bride. Thank you for your grace. Without it, we would all asphyxiate. I wish I could be even more grateful than I am right now. But I love you so much, Jesus. Thank you for loving us so well. Amen. And as I was reading that prayer, and maybe it was because of the hellish week that I had just been through, or maybe it was because I was just so supernaturally aware of how much I had to be grateful for. But as I read that prayer, I just began to weep. Tears flowing down my face. I, I begin to sob, kind of ugly cry, about toward, right towards the amen. And, and, and as I said amen, my wife, she was next to me. She just came over. She hugged me so hard. And she whispered in my ear, oh, sweetheart, was that the Vicodin talking? 
and I assured her it wasn't. And, and through my blurry eyes, I could see all three of my kids come and hug me along with my wife. And in that moment, I knew I was the most blessed human ever to live. See, I want to live that kind of grateful life all the time. And, and I know that the Lord, he, he sees how he has chosen to love us, and he, he sees. And yes, there are hardships in all of our lives. We, he, he understands that. But there is so much good, and there is so much blessing. There are so many ways that he has gifted us. And, and here's what I need to show you. I, I just need to visually show you something. And you might want to sketch this out or whatever, but you need to know simplicity and contentment and gratitude are like the same strain of DNA, right? They are absolutely connected. Simplicity, contentment, and gratitude, they promote each other. Each one leads to the next. As you practice them, they become a part of you. It's like an upward spiral of living in awareness of the blessing of God. And they will impact your personality. It'll impact how much enjoyment you have in life. It'll impact what others see in you. They'll see this increasing level of joy. And the more we practice gratitude, it's as if the scales fall off our eyes and God allows us to see even more things that we can be grateful for. So you need to see how they are all connected. It's all in, in one single strand of DNA. And then I want you to look at the contrast. I need you to see the other strand of DNA, the strand of complexity, the strand of discontentment, the strand of living ungrateful. And understand that they are also connected as well. And they promote each other as well. Each one leads to the next thing as well. And as you practice these things, it will become a downward spiral in your life of perceived poverty and adversity, and it will impact your personality just as well, how much misery you live with, the negativity that others see in you, your lack of joy as well. Now, here's the question I have to ask. What strand of DNA do you want running through you? What strand of DNA do you want running through your life? What strand do you want running into your children? and through your children into the next generation. You get to choose that answer. You get to choose, and it's, it's how you choose is what you choose to practice. And so I want to confess to you, I, I, again, this is a message to me as much as it is to you. I want to confess to you that there are times when I practice discontentment, complexity, and a life that's not grateful. There are times when I practice that, and the same thing is true for you. That's actually where our culture says that should be the default. But we get to choose to say that's not our default. Our default will be simplicity. Our default will be contentment. Our default will be gratitude. But it requires practice. So uh, here's what the scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Be thankful in all circumstances. And so I just would have you circle that first phrase, be thankful in all circumstances. This is God's will. Again, people are asking, what's God's will for my life? Well, here's a clear answer. God's will is for you to be thankful in all circumstances. And at the end of the day, you need to realize that if we will choose to be thankful to God, regardless of our feelings, 
He will give us his joy regardless of our circumstances. If we'll choose to be thankful to Jesus regardless of our feelings in the moment, he will choose to give us joy regardless of the circumstances that we face. And so I just want to close our time together by saying, friends, this is what we really, really want. This is our true, deep heart's desire. We want joy. And it's the who of who Christmas brings. Joy to the world, we sing. The Lord is come. And Jesus comes, and he accomplishes everything that needs to be accomplished. The sacrifice that he provides that we celebrate at Easter will be sufficient for us. That's why on the cross of Calvary, Jesus says, it is is finished. Everything that needs to be accomplished is accomplished. You can cease your striving. You can live in simplicity and contentment and gratitude because I have accomplished everything for you. And I just want us to understand that what we want is not really what we think we want. What we really want is Jesus. His presence is our presence. He himself is the gift of heaven. He himself is our heart's true desire. His presence is our present. And I want to end with a verse that many of you probably know by heart from Psalm 37, 4. It says, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Take delight in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Understand your heart's deep desire is the Lord. And then he will give you your heart's desires. He will give you himself. See, friends, we need to recognize that the Lord of the universe is for us. God himself is for us. He's more for us than we are for ourselves. And that's why the title that is given to Jesus in this season, the title that we celebrate around Christmas is Emmanuel, which means God with us, God with us. And in that with us, he is for us. And he wants us to live free. He wants us to live free from complexity, free from discontentment, free from a life that's not grateful. He wants us to live free of our addictions and our compulsions, free of this burden of constantly needing more, more, more. He wants us to live free from all that so that we can be free for joy, so that we can be free for love, for flourishing relationships with one another, for an understanding that he is our heart's deep desire. So I tell you what, as we, as we make this commitment to practice this week, that we're going to practice simplicity, we're going to practice contentment, we're going to practice gratitude, why don't we bow our heads right now, and why don't we ask Jesus for his help, that we would do these things in community, but we would do these things consistently to create this new strand of DNA in our lives. Let's pray it together. Lord Jesus, we confess that we need your help in this regard. We confess that this is one message that we have heard this year and that we hear contrary messages to this every day of our lives. So we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit's help for us to truly know what it means to practice simplicity, that we would be content in you, that we would live lives of gratitude before you, that we would choose to be very, very simple, very intentional, and very mindful 
about the way that we celebrate, about the way that we pursue giving gifts, about the way that we honor one another. Lord, help us to make the main thing the main thing. And help us always to remember that your presence really is our present. And we receive that gift now. We say thank you. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm.